0: Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: There was something in the back of my mind that was like, something's off. Something's not quite right. I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You look around you, and there's pain and suffering and misery, and you're just like, I have none of that, you know? Am I just lucky? Or maybe I'm doing something right. You know, And then, of course, you, you get into this rationalization where you're like, well, I'm doing something right, so I must know something that everyone else doesn't, so I'm just going to keep doubling down on my way of being Because look at me, I'm perfect, everything's happy. And and I guess I didn't realize that I was basically taking out a mortgage on on my future and mortgaging the people around me for, for my own betterment, my own gain. And I was not in harmony, certainly not with the way I see the world working today. That's Hollywood actor
0: and environmental activist, Adrian Grenier. And this is episode 129 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Friends, welcome back. It's great to be here with you again. Hope you're doing well. For new listeners, thank you for joining us. Simon Hill here, your show host, author, nutritionist and physiotherapist. Today, I'm really pleased to be able to share with you a recent conversation I had with Adrian Grenier. Adrian is most well-known for his starring role in Entourage, a HBO series that spanned eight seasons between 2004 to 2011, and was followed by the Entourage movie in 2015. While the story of Vincent Chase, the character that Adrian plays in Entourage, is very well told, what's less told is Adrian's own personal story, his somewhat cautious approach to entering Hollywood in the first place, and ultimately, The reality of realizing that once immersed in fame, despite having everything, something was missing in his life. He wanted more. In this episode, you will hear how this all unfolded, along with what I believe are many key learnings and practical tips, which we can all benefit from thinking deeply about. Beyond the changes that Adrian has made to the way that he sees and navigates the world, we also chat about his brilliant work in Nature conservation and activism. So, with that said, let's jump into it. I hope you enjoy this exchange as much as I did. And as always, I'll catch you on the other side for a debrief. Adrian, welcome to the show. The internet has certainly been conspiring against us, but it's uh, it's nice to finally be able to sit down with you and, and have this conversation.
1: God bless modern technology that allows us to have this conversation across oceans of oceans.
0: That's right. I I absolutely love the the work that you're doing, uh, not just with Lonely Whale and and Ducontra, but the the message that you're sharing when people think of Adrian Grenier, I dare say the Vinnie Chase would probably come to mind for 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 many people. And this figure of, of superstardom and a life that has everything or, or seemingly has everything. But there is a, a less told story inside of you. And one that, that I've observed that you're beginning to tell about showing up better and dealing with trauma and, and finding more meaning in our lives, which I think is a, a super important conversation. To, to kick this off, I've heard you say that you had all the things but felt empty on the inside. And I know that you've course corrected in recent years and are on this new path, so to speak. I think to to unpack this, we need to begin with how it is that you ended up as this star of this, this huge American TV series, Entourage, which really was a, a global phenomenon. What was life like for you as, as a young Adrian and you know, where was home and, and how would you sort of describe your upbringing as we unpack this path to stardom?
1: Yeah, I grew up in New York. I grew up uh, on the Upper West Side. I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And then I was at four years old. I moved with my mother to New York. My mother wanted a better life for me. She wanted to expose me to culture and diversity. And New York provided all of that. You know, my mom, I think, was also looking for culture and diversity for herself. And so at four years old, I, I was taken from. New Mexico with my family, my cousins, all that I knew, the big expanse of nature and the Sandias Mountains, the beautiful colors and the balloon festival and the balloon fair. I remember very fondly all the balloons floating in the sky. And then I, I ended up in New York, crowded and smelly. <laughs> I survived that. My mom and I struggled through the 80s. <laughs> but we survived the eighties until I ended up going to high school at LaGuardia, which was the famed school for music and art and performing arts. I learned to act and ended up going to college briefly for filmmaking, ultimately dropped out and then came back to the city to survive again, to survive now on my own. Uh, My mom kind of cut me off at at a certain point (laughs) after I had, you know, rejected college and um, and so just started working in my early 20s and then realized I didn't want to work that hard waiting tables and doing menial labor for a guy who didn't have any viable skills no degree <laughs> uh, so I, I leaned heavily into acting which was an easier way to make a, a buck and uh, it worked I, I managed to get some parts and i was sort of coasting along for several years i was doing one or two films a year and that was enough to support my lifestyle i had very low cost of living um so
0: did you have sort of obvious talent as an actor as you know you you mentioned there you went to a sort of acting school as a teenager was that something that people around you were telling you that you, you had a real talent for acting and you should pursue it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I did. You know, uh, it's, it's a matter of having talent, I suppose, but you know, mostly I think it's about having a craft and having the discipline to you know, apply that, that talent. So I, I think that my talent was really mostly irrelevant until I decided to actually do something and take it seriously.
0: Were were there any actors or TV shows that were sort of inspiring you that you were looking up to?
1: No, I was I was quite rebellious as a youngster. (laughs) I still am, (laughs) Uh, but but at the time, you know, I did not I did not have a television. I was very much in the kill your television mentality. I uh, did not want to be indoctrinated by commercialism, et cetera, and wanted to sort of remain on the edges and be rebellious against anything corporate, uh, i.e. anything that actually made a lot of money. I was very leery of Hollywood. And my friends and I were were punks, essentially. And it took some time for me to really open myself up to the idea of being a business person and stepping into the world of accumulation and business and acting as a means to build wealth and fame to actually uh, get some things accomplished in in a capitalist system. Uh, that was sort of a, a later stage in my life, my late 20s, when I really started to embrace um, that world.
0: Was that challenging for you given the way that you had sort of grown up to was that something you had to grapple with um hollywood the the idea of of kind of parting ways i guess with a a simpler life and a life that focused on the creative side more so than the tangible and the the fame and the notoriety and the money that would come with taking your craft to hollywood
1: yeah i think that in many ways i had a pretentious idea of what it meant to be an artist you know the sort of cliche archetypical struggling debauched and indulgent artist who you know would refuse anything that's good for him or anything of of material value because uh, you know sort of this romantic idea of of the struggle being the key to the good art and uh, yeah I had to I had to let go of that notion in fact I had to I had some struggles with my, my friends. We were all sort of holding each other down in many ways because we, we were all sharing the same romantic vision. And the minute I started getting opportunities that would actually pay me, I would get judged by my friends as being a sellout. I remember I came home <laughs> I came home to my roommates um, after having gone to get an... I think I got a, I got a role or I, a big audition for a role and I got the part... And I came back and they had taken one of my headshots and they cut out my face, pasted it on my mirror, put dollar signs in my eyes, and they and they wrote sellout on my
0: forehead. That's, that's yeah. got to be difficult when that's coming from your close friends. I mean, that must have had you questioning at some point, am I doing the right thing here?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, no, I just assumed that I was doing the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> and... Of course, I wanted approval from my friends, but eventually I had to move on from those friends because we were holding each other back. I mean, it was certainly an unhealthy dynamic in many ways. We were self-destructive and destructive to one another. And that was hard. That was hard to to let go of of that lifestyle and that the, the identity of, of our camaraderie and go out on my own. And it was scary.
0: That letting go or shedding seems to be something I've heard you speak about quite a bit. I think we'll come back to what that is because, I mean, what we just mentioned there around friends, that's, that's I guess, shedding in a, in a tangible way, but there's also shedding our ideas and, and thoughts. So let's put a pin in that and circle back to there. People will, will know you very, very well from Entourage, but you you had a few roles before that. Did, is that what took you to Hollywood initially?
1: Yeah. So I was doing um, the bare minimum I could do in order to survive. Um, I, I was also pursuing music and filmmaking. So I, I would do, as I said, one or two acting roles a year, and that would give me enough money to support my other artistic and creative endeavors. Uh, I I was making films, I was playing in a band and doing uh, a lot of things other than acting. And then the money would run dry and I'd go out and hustle and get another acting role. So I was doing one or two roles a year, notably (laughs) Drive Me Crazy being one of the bigger jobs that I got, uh, more Hollywood teeny bopper film. Uh, And then some critically acclaimed indie films as well. The Adventures of Sebastian Cole, so it's sort of running the gamut, you know, between indie, early, early days of Sundance, independent film, and then also some more commercial films as well. You know, it wasn't until my late 20s that Entourage came around.
0: So in that early period, had you had to deal with fame and what would come with fame? Or were you still relatively flying under the radar
1: a little bit? Yeah, I mean, to a minimum, to, to a minimal degree. I, I got a glimpse of it, but it, you know, certainly n- nowhere near what entourage allotted me. In many ways, I was leery of Hollywood and fame, and did not trust myself to be famous. Like I was, I there was something instinctive, very deep down inside, where I just I knew I wasn't ready to endure that experience. Really believing that it was something that had to be endured. Uh, it wasn't until my late 20s that I felt not only ready to uh, to jump in there and really fully go for it, but also I sort of had grown past uh, the immature part of me that was like wanting to be a starving artist forever. And I was ready to make some money and find some comfort.
0: So this is when the, the opportunity came along to do Entourage. And to essentially to star as the main character in the show on this huge HBO production, how did that opportunity come to you? Do you remember the first time it sort of landed on your lap? Of course I remember,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, life life-changing event or a series of events. So I was actually in Mexico, in Mérida, in the Yucatán Peninsula. I was making a documentary. I was actually on my way to sneak into Cuba to make a documentary about Cuban hip hop. So very much in line with the younger rebellious Adrian filmmaker who wanted to just do everything on the fringe and everything on a low, low, low budget scrappy. That was me. I had thousand dollars and I was like, ah, I could probably film for a good month on a thousand dollars and then when i get back i'll figure it out you know i'll figure out how i'm going to make some more money and then edit and all that stuff so i was in mexico i I get an email from my manager and he said oh check out this project called entourage and i was like okay cool and i read it and i was like yeah it's uh misogynistic superficial just like not not at all reflective of like i I don't want to be a part of something like that and he was like, yeah, but it's, you know, take another look. It's on HBO. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't do TV. He's like, it's not TV. It's HBO. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't own a TV. I don't I don't even have HBO. I don't. So I just kept saying, no, 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 no. My manager basically told me that if I didn't do it, if I didn't audition for it, that he, I could find a new manager. Cause he was sick of dealing with me. He was, uh, you know, he, he knew that I would like just blow off auditions and I would just like do my, I was doing my own thing and he wasn't making any money off me. And I could, I totally respect and appreciate why he sort of had it up to here with me. And, and I knew, I felt if I don't give in a little bit, I'm never going to have any opportunities again to make money. So I have to play the game to some degree. You can only say no so much. And so I, I heard it in his voice, and i said okay i'll 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 come audition and I did, and I guess they they really wanted a guy who was too good for the show because i you know I guess if you're a celebrity, you don't need to audition and so because I was so difficult, i guess or or because I kept saying no, I think they were intrigued, and that sort of added to the allure and gave me the edge that I needed to get the role
0: so you got the role and I think most people listening will be very familiar with the show, but if they're not, and, and to sort of summarize things a little bit here, what's what's interesting is, you just mentioned then, you know, weeks, months earlier, you were planning on rolling around Cuba on a, on a budget. And then all of a sudden, you're in this huge show that is going to see you just shoot to, to success and fame and a spotlight in Hollywood and that very much mirrored the character that you were playing of, of Vinnie Chase was that something that you were conscious of that the role you were playing was in some ways I'm sure something you were relating to on a personal level
1: oh yeah absolutely um, but Vince will always be a much bigger star than I am <laughs> forever <laughs> You know, it's just as much as I try and catch up. He's just a little bit cooler, a little <laughs> bit more hip than me. Fucking vent. <sighs> you know, like the, the show represented a lifestyle and an aspirational lifestyle that, you know, a, a lot of us liked to fantasize about, including myself. You know, I was like, yeah, I would love to be in a, you know, super... Uh, indulgent world with no consequences no consequences that's the key part it's it's not it's just it's a fantasy right it's just it's not real but yeah i mean i i loved i really enjoyed living the fantasy on behalf of the world and also off screen you know uh, off screen living that parallel life that was just you know maybe not as as, as big as Vince, but still, you know, had the allure, had the, all the things, had all the indulgences, had all of the access and all of the, the swag, so much swag. <laughs> the meta nature of my experience is not lost on me. Becoming famous by playing a guy who's becoming famous on a show about fame in a culture that's obsessed with fame, the, the layers of, of reflections is, you know, apparent and just really, I mean, I thought really cool also. In fact, I made a, a, a film about it. I made a film where I went even further. I deconstructed my celebrity through the eyes of a paparazzo. So cameras taking pictures of cameras, you know, filming. So I was still making documentaries as well. So like I had to get my uh, creative expression in there. And I made this film that was basically about the hall of mirrors, which was my life. And so, yeah, it was certainly uh, ironic.
0: Yeah, it's uh, definitely ironic, uncanny. Were you ready? I know that you said earlier you felt like you were sort of at the stage of your career where you were ready to take on something perhaps a little bigger, but were you really ready for the success and fame that would come with Entourage? And if you could go back and speak to yourself right now, when you were given the role, what bit of advice would have you given to yourself?
1: Oh, uh, Well, I, I mean, I think the universe gives you uh, what you're ready for always, I think, you know, on some level. Um, and yeah, instinctively, I, I felt like, okay, you know what, I can do this and, and survive it and thrive within it. Of course, I wasn't aware of some of the pitfalls that, that I had to struggle with ultimately. But anybody who's famous, who has that rare, unique experience of having that many people paying attention to you or being aware of you, of the meat suit that you are, has to be dealt with. Everybody who's famous has to deal with fame in their own way. Uh, I dealt with it in my way uh, and in some ways better than others. But ultimately, I, you know, so for example, I don't think I would let my children act in commercial properties, you know, to go into Hollywood and get jobs and on sets. And I don't know if I would want my kids to, to, to have to endure that experience, that level of, of, of attention in coddling and catering to, I think, it, I think it's, it's not an easy thing to act in a play, maybe, you know, or, or, you know, to do something that's down to earth and, Creative for the sake of the craft, sure. But the minute it becomes something that's plastered on every billboard and becomes a popular event, it's something that's really hard for the human psyche to contend with. We're not used to having that level of attention. We're used to being in tribes with a small number, 150 humans that we are familiar with, that we know, that can hold us and help us when we're struggling, that don't expect us to always be perfect and that call us on our bullshit too. They tell us our shit stinks. In Hollywood, no one will tell you that. <laughs> you
0: know? At that time in your life, when you were sort of right in the middle of entourage and at the heights of your fame, did you feel lonely? A lot of this attention can be quite superficial, right? Did you feel like you had... The, the sort of deep and meaningful connections in your life at that time?
1: Um, I didn't feel lonely because I was never alone. I was just always on, always in some social thing, always traveling, always on to the next best thing, always just on the, just barely ahead of FOMO, just avoiding at all costs, having to peer into the abyss, and really face that existential angst of wow who are we what are we why are we here and i'm gonna die one day (laughs) just literally living 20 feet off the ground high as a kite invincible no pun intended uh yeah feeling immortal talk me through that because
0: at the start I said I've heard you say before that you had all the things but you felt empty on the inside and and I think from from the outside in someone could look at your sort of uh, entrance into Hollywood and the fame that came with entourage and 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 look at that and think about all the fun that that must have come with that with the indulgence and the fame and the attention and, and I can imagine that there were times when you were pinching yourself. Is this even real? Um, but what do you mean by you felt sort of empty on the inside?
1: I, I don't know when I said that. I don't know if I would say that right now. Um, I, maybe I'd correct it a little bit and just say that I felt nothing. It's not that I felt empty. I just didn't feel bad. I didn't feel anything. I, I was just numbed out in my mind i was happy because i just it was pleasure and feasts and you know just good times i wouldn't say that i was even aware of the emptiness i didn't even have an awareness of the feeling of depth you know the lack of depth (laughs) it was more just i had a sense of dread that might be it like just more there was something in the back of my mind that was like something's off something's not quite right i was just waiting for the the other shoe to drop
0: life was almost too good in some ways
1: it was like yeah it's like you look around you and there's pain and suffering and misery and you're just like and none i have none of that you know and so am i just lucky or maybe i'm doing something right you know and then of course you, you get into this rationalization where you're like, well, I'm doing something right. So I must know something that everyone else doesn't. So I'm just going to keep doubling down on my way of being because look at me, I'm perfect. Everything's happy. In, in a, and I guess I didn't realize that I was basically taking out a mortgage on on my future and, and, and mortgaging the, the people around me for, for my own betterment, my own gain. And I was not in harmony, certainly not with the way I see the world working today. So it would eventually catch up and
0: you would have to deal with it and we'll go through that and what that has looked like. But Entourage kicked off in around 2004 and I remember that vividly. Uh, that was the year that I finished high school. And of course, in my friendship group in in Melbourne, uh, Vinnie Chase and Drama and Turtle, all of the characters in the show were very popular and everyone had their own nicknames as I'm sure every... Friendship group across the world had uh, there was a Vinny in every group and a Turtle in every group and you would have heard this all the time. But Entourage, I think there was eight seasons, so this went on for for years and years. This extreme fame and rise to stardom. You're saying that you were sort of feeling nothing or, or dread where do things then begin to unravel? Was that a gradual feeling that something was missing from your life and eventually it just reached a point where you had to deal with it? Or was there an acute event that left you thinking, shit, I need to to take inventory here?
1: Yeah, uh, an acute event. I, I was not going to do it on my own. I was just doubling down, doubling down and just putting off any meaningful experiences any work yeah the good stuff comes from hard work and sacrifice and i was just i was just not ready for that i just was too asleep at the wheel too comfortable too cozy to to really bring in that level of struggle (laughs) to have to actually you know unlearn and relearn and go through the the death rebirth process that my soul needed yeah, so I, you know, I imagined that at some point the other shoe was going to drop. I just didn't know when, and I was like, "Is it a death? Am I going to die, or is am I going to like, I don't know, get into an accident and lose my ability to walk, limbs? I mean, there's any number of things that you know are possible. You know, you know, you know, on 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 the fundamental level, you're not immortal, and yet you feel like you know you're untouchable. Uh, and it wasn't until I had a breakup, I was with my partner at the time. And in my mind, we were just going to roll into family and children and maybe living together and maybe some sort of kind of marriage, although I didn't really believe in marriage, you know, but do all of that while still having the party life, still having the indulgences of being single, you know, and still doing all the things that, I'd always done, but also in a relationship with children. I mean, it's, <laughs> it just didn't compute. That's a lot, That's a lot to juggle. <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, I'm like, what a fucking delusional guy I was. <laughs> um, but she, she said, no, hell no. And she dumped me. And that was the wake-up call because I loved her. And I, I could not believe that, that she was going to leave me. and no one knew me as as well as she did. And I was like, if someone I trust and love so much, and I know loves me back, if she's willing to throw this all away. And and I know she's psychic too. By the way, I know that she knows she's a, she's a more of an intuitive spirit than I could ever be. I was like, well, there is something that I need to investigate here. (laughs) And so after she left me I, I, that sort of sparked um, it, it, it basically sparked my journey of self-discovery and um, God bless her for it I you know say a prayer to her, her every day So talk me through
0: what that looked like where do you start do you do you start by speaking with friends or do you call your your mother or do you start with certain daily practices where do you go when you realize okay shit i need to clean things up here what's what's the start of that process
1: well i mean i just basically it started by me just being very uncomfortable for quite a long time just the resistance like the denial like why why did she leave me like this is bullshit like maybe i'll just like Bounce back like I always do. Let me go out and party a bit and see if that makes me feel better. And it just didn't, you know. So there was some resistance at first and just avoiding doing the work that I knew I needed to do. And then eventually, okay, here I go. It's time to buckle up, hunker down, and begin, begin to work. And so the first thing I did was cl- cleaned house. Marie Kondo. uh, I was just shedding. Does this bring me joy? No. Okay. Ow. And it's not just physical items. It's not just the things in the house, but it's also the, you know, the conditionings, the patterns, the lifestyle choices. Is this serving me in this moment? No. Okay. I'll stop drinking. Sex. Is this serving me? What is with this sex stuff that is not serving me or is not like supportive of me growing up? So I went through a period of celibacy. I went through a period of uh, sobriety, um, started meditating, clearing my thoughts, cleaning the chatter in the brain and created a clean slate uh, on which I could then build again. So it sounds like this was a tipping point
0: where you realized, and you mentioned there, you went out and partied and realized that wasn't going to help you get through this situation. So you realized that this feeling of emptiness or not feeling anything wasn't going to go away through anything external, any anything it, that you it, could... It was
1: at this point that I felt the emptiness. When she left me, then I realized it was like direct confirmation that, oh, you know, we are, our lives are the relationships we hold. And my relationships were fleeting And the one relationship that I thought was going to be of substance that was going to hold me through, you know, the rest of my life was gone. And what was it that I was not able to hold, like, keep that relationship? Why? You know, so I had to start contending with what it was that I how I was showing up in relationships. What I was really offering to people, what kinds of people were in my life and were they really supportive of me? Or was it just a fun Friday for them? So it was at that point then I started to feel the emptiness and the loneliness, and that scared the shit out of me because I was like, wow, this is, this is a lot to be you know, sitting in for, for the rest of that forever.
0: So it becomes very much a sort of inside job for you at this time. And you mentioned before meditation, and, and I'm kind of wondering from a practical point of view, if someone is feeling this feeling that Something's just not right, and and they're wanting to go inwards. Is there any books that you turned to that helped you, or uh, are there any sort of particular defining moments that helped you with this?
1: Yeah, certainly a number of books. Uh, You know, I, I knew that there was something around my masculinity that I needed to work on, something around growing up, becoming a man, you know, and not in a cliche sense, but. Growing up and taking responsibility for my life, and I started to explore men's work. I started to seek out men's groups and also reading all the literature, all the books that I had heard about and you know people had recommended, but I had avoided. You know, I don't need that. You know, I'm good, thanks. So I, I went back. I read Iron John uh, is one, um, the Way of the Superior Man. I read, which was very, very helpful. 12 Rules for Life was very helpful. Man's Search for Meaning. A number of books that, yeah, that sort of set into motion a a larger exploration of my own identity as a man and helped to invite some of the rites of passages that I would not had the opportunity to go through because I didn't have the positive adult role models that one might hope to have. Um and had to sort of create my own initiation into mature adult masculine figure. And and I did I did a shitload of podcasting and YouTube YouTubing
0: as well. And you mentioned before that you were doing some meditation. Meditation, yeah. Was meditation a a practice that you you already had as part of your sort of daily rituals routine? Preceding this, or was this something new that you
1: leapt into and and started to see benefit from? Um, so meditation is something that I did when I was younger and sort of lost track of it for all the reasons we're talking about, and then sort of came back to recognizing the value of that as a, a tool. Uh, and yeah, started creating a lot more self awareness, a lot more presence, a lot more depth of feeling expanding my awareness of all of the sensations, all of the feelings in, my, in myself that were craving escape, wanting to be avoided, and confronting some of the unpleasant experiences and feelings inside my psyche that I'd been avoiding that only a strong, mature man can confront. I had to become the warrior in order to face myself.
0: It sounds like in many ways, you, you mentioned earlier at the start of our conversation here that you were a little leery of Hollywood, but it, it, it sounds like in many ways the experience of Hollywood has allowed you to, to tap into many parts of you that were already there and reinforce those. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, you know, ho- Hollywood is a land of make-believe, storytelling. You know, part of our jobs as actors is to tap into the aspects of ourselves in order to play a version of ourselves for that particular character. Dissociative is like disjointing to always be ungrounded in these wisps of personalities. But you know what? It's also a safe place to be because it means you don't have to take a stance. You don't have to stand for anything. You don't have to make a decision. You don't have to choose an identity and own it and take responsibility for it, you can just skirt in and out of various roles and serve yourself or serve the moment and get away with things because you can just put on the mask it's very hard when you re- remove all the masks and you're just confronted with the self that is you know, behind all of that.
0: These changes that you're talking about and what you've been working through can also be somewhat difficult if the people around us are not sharing the same outlook. And often we hear a phrase thrown around, find your tribe. I'm sure you've heard of that before. And I'm wondering in the recent years, as you've been working through this, how important has that been for you surrounding yourself with the right people to help you with this sort of new path?
1: Extremely important. You know, I, I, it was important for me to not only shed the things that weren't serving me, but also invite in those things that would help to be supportive and help me learn things that I was unfamiliar with at the time. So, yeah, I, I definitely needed to seek out like minded men, humans, not just men, but particularly men uh, who would help me do the hard things to to like support me during those hard moments and also give me insights into their own journey into self-discovery and growth and create a positive feedback loop amongst those peers who have a higher order of thinking that want more for the world, that want more for themselves, that want more for you. And together we, we rise as opposed to this tall poppy envy. You know, there's a lot of envy in Hollywood and competition and nobody wants you to succeed. Everybody wants to pull you down so that they can succeed. And I mean, and that's the zero sum game of our capitalist culture. You know, it's like, get mine, exploit others, our natural resources, because if I don't, someone else will. It's survival of the fittest and it's competition. And that's just not true. Our greatest gift as humans is the ability to collaborate and support each other and envision a better world, share that vision abstractly through language, come to a common understanding of what's possible, and then together work to make it so, to actually conjure that reality. And, that, and that's such a hopeful worldview. And I, I'm lucky to, to say that now I, I have friends that do share my optimism for what's possible and that do support me and who are manifesting a better world for ourselves and our children. So yes.
0: Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Let's dig a little into being hopeful because I'm assuming that through this introspective journey, there have been some benefits that you've experienced that you have felt and people might be listening and maybe they have their own experience where they're trying to shed and move away from something in their past. There could be some temptation to revert to your old lifestyle and and the sort of instant gratification or fun that that brings. What is it that's holding you to this new path?
1: Yeah. And I think, is the change real? Has it truly taken hold or are you at risk of relapsing or falling back into the old patterns, the old lifestyle? And I would say, yeah, of course, there's that risk. And that's, that's part of the value of making healthier, positive choices, because it's a choice. If you don't have the ability to choose, if you're just being forced to do something, or if you can't do the malevolent thing because it's just that you don't have access to it, but you would if you could, then it's not really authentic. So I like to remain in close proximity to those other indulgences just to remind myself that I am making a choice And every moment is a choice. It's a choice to choose from your heart or to choose from ego or some other, maybe more diminished place. And I, I do take that very seriously like this. I sort of had a strained relationship with the divine, with God. In fact, I was agnostic at best and atheist uh, much of the time didn't believe in God. And then I realized, wow, no, God is real in that we choose in every moment to embody that principle of God, to make choices that are reflective of that divine, higher aspiration embodied in God, or we choose the diminished parts of ourselves that are you know, more reflective of the baddies, evil. I've relented into accepting the God consciousness as being simply the reflection of our higher selves. And so that is a choice we make in every moment. And that's why in the allegory of the Bible, the story of the Bible, God gave us free will so that we can choose in every moment. And it's important that we have that choice because if we simply had to make the right choice or if God didn't give us free will and we were just good, then there would be no love in that. It would just be, it'd be kind of boring too.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that's beautifully put that you still can indulge, but you're choosing not to, and that's powerful. It's not that you can't, you've, you've chosen
1: not to. Yes. And all of those layers are still within me. And I, I have transcended that worldview and those so that set of choice making. I'm oriented in a different direction, but that's still part of me. I still have all that yummy naughtiness, you know, inside. I'm just not I'm just not indulging it.
0: So a a big part of this course correction and from the outside in any way, it seems to be about finding a, a way to serve others or adding that as another layer to your life. And no doubt you were already doing this, but it seems like you've kind of doubled down a little bit on it, uh, particularly with the work you're doing with uh, Lonely Whale. There's a quote from Jay Shetty that I love, and it, it's, Plant trees under those whose shade you do not sit. It may not be his quote, but it's in his book. That's a, Yeah, that's a great quote. And and I think this speaks to a lot of the work that you're doing with Lonely Whale, which I'd like to to sort of dig into.
1: Definitely <sighs> live, live by that principle,
0: 100%. So how about to start with Lonely Whale, if we zoom out first for a kind of macro look before coming into the level of the oceans, what makes you care about the planet and and life around you? Where did this sort of passion for environmentalism come from?
1: I think it's, it's a belief that I matter, a belief that what I do actually matters. And so therefore, when I see the world and I want it to be better than it is, when I see humans, civilizations, wanting things to be less destructive and more, more careful, more mindful, more sensitive to all living things, I, I believe that that's possible. I believe that it is something that we can achieve. And so I decided to put my life force, my energy into doing whatever I can to help get us there. So I really believe in humans' ability to achieve great things, our creative ability, our ability to collaborate, our ability to 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 make the world and fashion the world in, in the image of, of our vision. So I just... I I wanted to participate in that creative process and and a reflection of love and appreciation for nature.
0: And so a, a big part of the Lonely Whale concept and mission is the creative story that is behind it and behind 52 Blue. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, certainly. Our hero mascot, the Lonely Whale, is a creative force who seeks connection singing a different frequency than all other whales. Whales typically sing between 15 and 20 hertz, but our whale 52 sings 52 hertz. So it has a unique voice, a special individual. Um, And yet whales are highly sentient, very social, very, very social, even perhaps more social than humans. They spend their whole lives in, in pods. They never leave each other's sight. And so this whale singing a different tune without ever receiving a response from another of his species, you can imagine he must be a little lonely. And so upon hearing that story, what happens? Your heart swells. Suddenly you have compassion, have empathy for an animal that is not a human. It's like a different species of creature. And yet we feel something. So it just goes to show you the power of story and allegory and also The fact that this whale, even though he can't communicate to others of his kind, he can communicate directly to the human spirit. So taking our cues from this lonely whale, we we believe that the way we heal our ocean is through connection, through bonding with one another and then connecting with nature and recognizing that when we hear the call, when we translate the frequency, When we receive the messages from nature, we can care and we can show greater empathy for the planet and recognizing that we aren't separate, that we are all connected. And so all the things that we do don't leave us and go away. They actually come back to affect us. We are interdependent, interconnected, and that is the the lesson of the lonely will.
0: And so in terms of healing the ocean and, and helping support our ocean, the lonely whale has a, a focus on plastic, at least for now. That's a primary focus. Can you can you speak to that in terms of why plastic? Why is this a sort of big problem,
1: and what's driving it? Well, it? It may not seem like it because we have done quite a lot of plastic reduction work, but our mission is not to do plastic. It's our mission really is to create more connection to people and connection to nature. And so all of our projects have been designed to do that. So when we started doing plastic, it was really to give people the awareness of that connection to their everyday habits and how it affects the ocean. So we distilled the entire plastic problem in the ocean, which is 10 million tons every year. And we reduced it to one single unit of measure which is a piece of microplastic and we use the straw to embody to symbolize that one unit and that one unit of measure that straw is a direct connection to every single human on the planet every single day in our everyday life experience so we drew that connection to what you do every day to plastic in the ocean and gave you a empowering choice to say no to stop sucking um and that that was how we got into plastic of course you know there's a a lot of work to be done but it wasn't specifically for plastic we really believe that the solution is through self-care connection and then making the choices that you can make to reflect that connection we created next wave plastics which is A consortium of 15 companies from around the world that have a global footprint. So again, connecting companies to create a global supply chain to utilize plastic that's destined for the ocean in their businesses to to some degree. And so they've all pledged to uh, not only support financing the creation of a global supply chain for this particular material, but then also have pledged to do Personal audits of their business to find ways that they can utilize it in the way they do business. So again, connection. We are connecting the businesses so that they can achieve you know, a healthier ocean together. Uh, and then I'll just my, la- my last pitch for now. <laughs> uh, ocean Heroes Bootcamp. We've made we've connected rather 300 kids from around the world, ages eight to eighteen, from 30 different countries in a boot camp style conference where youngsters can learn about science ocean science plastic pollution and solutions to many of the, the world's problems while they get to know each other create alliances lifelong friends and can have a little fun doing the work to better our oceans because it's more fun with your friends
0: yeah i love it and it's it's powerful raising awareness and and educating individuals and businesses uh, that they can be a part of the solution and, and helping the planet heal is super And like helpful. you said,
1: finding people of, of like mind to support you and yeah. you know manifest in your higher self.
0: I know that you track some of your impact on some of the projects. Can you talk to any of the sort of tracking or the metrics that you've followed
1: um, with regards to perhaps the straw campaign? I mean, I don't know what the metric is at this point. Um, you know, at, at one point, I remember the last I checked, we were at like 20 billion plastic straws removed from the environment. And that's, yay, that's amazing. And and just, I mean, a lot of it is just experiential. Like, you know, it's it's hard to even get that data, but you know, going to any number of restaurants and it's it's either paper or other, you know, biodegradable options or just not even a straw at all. You know, they have a lot of new um, containers that don't even receive a straw. So I, I can't say exactly, but I know it was it was quite a big number at one point. But still, just to start, that's not the goal. You know, our goal is really the awareness and recognizing there's a long way to go. We still have a huge plastic problem. And so I choose not to be too self-congratulatory, but just keep going because there's still more work to be done.
0: Yeah, I think though we we do need to pause and acknowledge there has been huge progress while there's still lots of work to be done. I think the last five years, and perhaps I'm in a bit of a bubble uh, here in Bondi in Sydney, and I traveled to Bali all the time, but a lot of the places that I regularly go to, this single-use plastic seems to be disappearing. Which is a, a great start, as you say. Yeah. Well, enter masks. Yeah, I, that's that's a whole another conversation, isn't it? Yeah, I, I I
1: I think that as conservationists, we need to let go a little of perfection. You know, wanting to save like the savior complex of I'm going to save everybody by doing this thing. We're in a very complex reality, a multifactorial, to say the least, reality. I emphasize these days personal choice. What are you doing every day yourself to remove the barriers from a healed planet? Are you doing the work to heal yourself so that when you go out and do the conservation work, you're not bringing your unconscious biases, your preconditioned corporate capital savior complexes your imperialistic thinking to the work are you coming at it from the same paradigm that created the problem and i see that a lot in conservation like a lot of this old paradigm thinking in trying to create the solution we really need to first change our minds change the way in which we approach the challenges so that we be careful not to repeat some of the same programs from the destructive um, ways of being.
0: Yeah, perfection has a, a tendency to become the enemy of good and it's it's a lot to take on to try and do everything perfectly within the current systems that we find ourselves in. So I, I take the, the same sort of approach as you with all of this. With regards to plastic in the ocean, I'm sure you've watched Sea Spiracy or, or have heard people speak about it. What are your thoughts on commercial fishing to the plastic in our oceans. Is this a concern? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Definitely a concern. Um, sadly, there was nothing new in sea spiracy for me. You know, a lot of what was brought up in the film I've known about for years. To me, the, the film was kind of like a, the greatest hits of horror in the ocean. Like, let's just pack all of the shit that you got to be fucking concerned about in the ocean in one film. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I just don't, I, I don't know if I buy the solution presented. I'm very happy if people watch it and they have some more awareness around the way in which our current systems are organized. But again, it's it's a complex system. <laughs> There's a one guy in the, um, he had like dolphin safe tuna. And they were like, well, can you guarantee that it's safe? And he's like, we can't guarantee it. And he's like, well then, why would you buy Dolphin Safe? It says Dolphin Safe. He goes, "Well, because we do our best efforts. We we make sure we can do, but you know, it's like not really viable. It's not a possibility to be hundred percent sure. Just not financially viable to like have a, a, somebody watching over every single fisherman. And the, and the oceans are vast. It's a common pool resource. It's hard to police. I think that the cynical approach of the filmmaker in that moment was: you see, you can't trust anything. You can't trust any of these people." But what I saw was that is how it is. There is so much complexity that you can only do the best you can do. It becomes problematic when people are disingenuous and they start greenwashing and try, and like they're bad actors. They're actively trying to deceive, but we need to be able to embrace the ambiguity at times and recognize that there's not one solution that's just going to make you feel good. Like, oh, everything's Okay. Like if you're looking at a a sign on a product to make you feel safe and okay about what you're doing, then you're not engaged enough in the realities of what it means to actually get your own food and how food is actually produced and created. And don't buy anything if you want guarantees because our our system is so complex and it's been cultivated and built over such a long period of time that in order to turn this ship around, it's going to take, a long period of time. And I'd say the one thing you should start doing is start finding ways to um, source your own food and really understanding where your food's coming from instead of waiting for a corporation to give you a, a pass on a label.
0: I was going to ask you that. So you, you mentioned the best you can do. So you're telling people to, to look at the source. But from a, a sort of big picture point of view, you, you mentioned there that you don't really agree with the solution. And I would agree. I don't think it's realistic for the entire world to adopt a vegan diet. I don't see that happening anytime soon at all. So when you think about solutions, not at the individual level, more at the industry, corporation levels, have you thought about what that would look like or, or could look like?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, first of all, I think on an individual level, it's really important. To take care of yourself, clean your own room, level up your thinking, you know, get get better at sense-making, be able to discern amongst all of the messaging that, you know, we get bombarded with all the time. Don't get hijacked by, you know, any political party or any corporate interest and start becoming more self-reliant and independent in not only how you think, but also how you engage with your food and your community. You know, think global, act local. I, I really believe act local, like hyper-local, self get healthy, get strong, eat right, exercise, and then hopefully take care of your family and then your community, your surrounding community. Uh, If you can grow food, grow food. That's a great start. Don't buy everything from the supermarket. Uh, (laughs) That, that in essence, is an industry, right? I mean, I imagine a future in which we have a system of decentralized local hubs, little islands of self-reliance and cohesion, which we can be as self-reliant as possible without having to go outside. And because the, the farther outside of your immediate space you go, the harder it is to track. So how much can you do on, on like, you know, 50 to hundred mile radius level? It's One reason why I moved to a farm because I can source a lot of my food immediately here. And then the food that I can't grow, I got neighbors that got some. So and you know i don't know people say it's not realistic for everybody to live out in nature but i do believe that we can create systems even in cities that allow for hyper localized production of food and so i think decentralizing our food system would be a great start and, and it's not going to happen right away right so don't beat yourself up if you have to go you know buy something that's you know, been shipped across the country or around the world. Uh, And and, and we were talking before, my faith is in the long-term nature of things. I'm not thinking quarters and years. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm planting the trees for future generations to sit under their shade. And everything I build, I hope, will reflect the values that we all share, which is non-exploitative, non-harmful to our resources and nature respecting and appreciating the diversity of cultures and wildlife and uh, the interdependence of things and we're, ha- we're having to build these systems now this is the time we build them for that future that we may not see so patience patience
0: are you familiar with the planetary health plate have you heard of that the the eight lancet plate that came out in 2019 the, no, tell me more. The Lancet is a, a, a sort of prestigious scientific journal, and they got thirty scientists and food systems experts, and they asked them the question of how can we feed eleven billion people by twenty fifty a sustainable diet that's also health promoting. And I think I think it's a good reference for people. It's a it's a dietary pattern that can include animal products, but it would probably be described as plant predominant, I guess. So there's a lot of whole plants in there. Um, and if someone chooses to have animal products, they're in there too, or they don't have to be. But I think it's a good guide for people to look at and then to add to that the things that you said. If you can look at that as a bit of a guide and then try to to source as many of those foods from local community as possible and from farms that are interested in regenerative style practices, I think that's a sort of good starting point for people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Amen. I'd love to uh, send me a link. I'd love to, to look at it.
0: Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll send that across uh, afterwards. Hey, let's let's segue, uh, jump over a little bit here, change gears uh, as we're winding up. I do want to talk about Ducontra and this idea of yield beyond money Where does that sort of come into the picture here with everything that we're talking about and and what's going on in your life?
1: Yeah, well, you know, they say money is the root of all evil and we are seemingly inextricably linked to that very evil. (laughs) Um, We are in a capitalist system and money is the driving energy flow within our culture, within our way of life, within our civilization. So when trying to solve for some of the world's biggest challenges we have to pass through money which creates some sort of a problem because it's inherently corruptive you know when that becomes the focus and the goal which means you're justifying all sorts of bad behavior in order to get the money well you got the money so therefore it's good right so we're trying to shift our perspective and make money not the goal but relegating it or putting it into the appropriate relationship to what we're doing, which is a tool, a tool. It's a, it's a tool of creation. It's what we use to build our society or a business. So we believe that the spirit of the tool is determined by the hand of the user. So money being the tool. And then now we have to get into our best higher selves so that when we deploy that tool, when we utilize that tool, we can actually build the businesses that really matter, that really are of true value to ourselves and our society. And we found that those businesses are the businesses that give us yields beyond money, that are not money-based, that are ineffable. We want to really honor and, and focus on the immeasurable, the things that are just beyond The boundaries of our calculators, the things that really give us the most joy and human flourishing and well-being, and it is things you can't measure. It's not. It's it's not. You can't. Certainly can't buy it, right? It's the things that are truly healing and positive for the planet.
0: So, tell me, what are some of the the sort of startups or industries that you're most excited by and looking
1: to support? So we have four different categories. One is do consumer, which is consumer goods. So products that you, know, you might find in the shelf. So investing in founders and companies that have already done this kind of work and recognize that they want more than just a big exit. They want to build a business that's better for the planet, better for people that are reducing waste, that are uh, reducing expectation of our resources etc so that's one category another category is the future of finance in which we are investing in financial instruments tools that give more access to more people of the world's wealth to decentralize so technologies that help to as we were talking about before decentralize a lot of the wealth um, and and put it in the hands of local projects and businesses. So really healing our relationship to money. That's what the future of finance protocol is focused on. Human flourishing, which is a set of tools that are both ancient and new that help support the betterment of humankind. So health, wellness, mental health, as well as even psychedelics and technologies that help people level up. Uh, So that's another vertical. And then the the last vertical is communitas. We really believe in bonding and creating very robust communities of humans sharing, sharing that felt experience of the impact that we're creating, as opposed to it being all looking at how much money we're making and all the zeros that we're going to get in our bank account. We got to bring that into the tangible, into the real, where we can share that experience with one another. And that includes transformative experiences and retreats and outings and human-to-human bonding. So so within those four categories, we are looking at businesses that support all of those different aspects.
0: Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. I love it. It's so exciting. I'm sure that's going to be incredibly exciting for you to to grow over the next decade or so. And I look forward to to watching how that all plays out. Yeah, thank you. On the topic of psychedelics, actually, uh, I have a, a nutritional psychiatrist coming on the show in a couple of weeks, uh, Dr. Uma Nadu, and and we'll be talking about psychedelics. So I'll send you that that episode to have a listen to.
1: Please do. Yeah. They're an important technology that can really be helpful in bringing about some really profound transformative experiences for for people. You know the the initiatory death rebirth experiences that we need that we started talking about in the beginning, that help us get into better relationship to you know what it means to be living, to be alive, and to thrive. And so, yeah,
0: have plant medicines been a part of your sort of journey in in terms of this journey of going inwards over the last few years?
1: Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, besides reading books, you know, which is ideas and getting in the head, you know, it was really important that I did the work to get into my body. Embodiment being such an important piece. It's one thing to understand something, but it's another thing to walk the walk and be able to put one foot in front of the other and embody that perspective and be it and manifest it through action, and so a lot of breath work, uh, did a lot of shamanic rituals to to conjure the the same states of ecstasis and transcendence, and then of course plant medicines, which have also been important tools of of, of learning and self discovery.
0: And I know that as we sort of build on this idea of of du and investment. And this yield beyond money idea, I know that I've heard you speak about, it's not just about what you're investing in, but I've heard you talk about personal divestment at a sort of high level without the nitty gritty details. Can you explain what this idea of divestment
1: means and why it's something that you've grappled with? Certainly, yeah. The reason why a lot of these industries that are as destructive as they are persist is because we are investing in them. We are supporting them. We are propping them up. And, and in ways we're not even aware of, we're not conscious of. Um, so not only you know will we go out to a store and actually put down some cash to buy a product, thusly support that particular product and reason for being, and then ultimately the company and then the parent company, et cetera, but through our investments as well in the stock market, a lot of our portfolio companies... Well, not ours at Ducontré, but you know, if if you're invested in a portfolio of any sort, many times, more times than not, there will be companies that support a lot of the things that you may not be aligned with ethically, and they're in there because they're doing well. So, oil is one of them. If you're, uh, you know, you're like your four hundred one k, right, or your your retirement plan, a lot of times will be naturally just by default invested in a lot of these companies because they're designed to make sure that your investment portfolio is secured. And a lot of these companies are secure because they do very well by doing a lot of negative things around the world, unfortunately. So you have to take a little bit of time to like almost with a scalpel, go in and extract those businesses from your portfolio And then replace them with other companies that will help to offset whatever that shift is in your portfolio. So I I did a lot of that work a few years ago, divested from oil and uh, weapons and tobacco and stuff like that, which I just fundamentally am opposed to ethically. Even though they were making a lot of money, I don't believe in them and I would not like to support them. So yeah, divesting is uh, an important step as well and taking away your support for certain businesses.
0: Beautifully put. Some good food for thought there, certainly. Hey, so to wind this one up, you mentioned the word hopeful before, and I thought we could finish with some hope. You speak of the industrial evolution, and I heard you speak about this, and I thought it was really, really nice. Can you explain this idea of industrial evolution?
1: Yeah, um, the industrial revolution created internal combustion engine, which sparked all of our all of our everything. You know, um, thrust into modernity, all of the buildings, all of the urban sprawl, all of the industry that is out there in the oceans, exploiting our fish faster than they can regenerate. All the pollution that creates climate change, all of the industries that exploit child labor et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. so that's daunting and upsetting but i do believe that we are now poised for an industrial evolution in which we evolve into the next phase where we can actually create industries that aren't not only not destructive but can be regenerative and have a net positive effect on people and the planet It is absolutely possible. It is within reach. It just takes a little bit of imagination, which we're really good at as humans. And then a lot of collaboration in which we put our egos aside and we decide to give into that symbiotic interdependent relationship between each other as humans and the planet itself, all of ecosystem services as well, paying respects to nature and all the things that it's offering us for free, free of charge, to support human life. Uh, so working in harmony is really, I think, what's possible in the new industrial evolution.
0: Well put, mate. It's uh, It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Uh, as I said at the start, the internet was conspiring against us, but I'm so glad that we were able to do this because uh, you're just dropping so much knowledge. And I know that... So much of what you're saying deeply resonates with me, and and I know that it will with the listeners. And I really hope that you keep feeling compelled to share because it is just such important information that you're covering. Uh, so please do come back and and join me again sometime soon. I know the the community here would love next time
1: to- in person. Yes,
0: next time hopefully in person, be it in uh, in Bondi or in <laughs> Texas uh actually i grew up in texas i didn't tell you that really i spent uh, yeah i spent uh your,
1: your accent betrays it, you, you.
0: <laughs> that's right i actually was living in college station but i was uh i was only uh, two till six years so the the very start of my life there um Hey, in the, in the meantime, before we do connect again, if, if anyone does want to collaborate or support the work you're, you're doing or connect with you online, uh, where's the best place for them to
1: find you? Well, I'm at Adrian Grenier on all the socials. Um, but more importantly, you can go to lonelywell.org or at lonelywell on socials and uh, ducontra.ventures or at ducontra that ventures on socials Um, yeah come We, we love to
0: collaborate thank you my friend let's do this again soon
1: thank you bye everyone
0: there we go how did that land for you i think the biggest thing that i personally took away from this conversation was that it's okay to want more out of life often that's a hard thing to come to terms with and, and also that shedding things, be it the tangible parts of our life or ideas in our mind, is often what's stopping us, what's in our way from feeling more alive in our day-to-day and adding more depth to our existence. In our day-to-day life, it's easy to just accept that life is the way it is or push back the work that's required to redesign parts of our life to bring greater pleasure, purpose, and fulfillment. And there's actually a quote that speaks directly to this that I wanted to share with Adrian. This quote is from Robin Sharma, who wrote The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, a fantastic book that many of you will be familiar with. If you're not, then do yourself a favor and get a copy. He says, saying that you don't have time to improve your thoughts and your life is like saying you don't have time to stop for gas because you're too busy driving. Eventually, it will catch up with you. I'll leave you with that. I think there's a bit in there for all of us to consider. If you would like to continue the conversation, please do reach out to Adrian and myself on the socials. And of course, please do check out Lonely Whale and do Contra Ventures online. I'll pop the links to both along with Adrian's book recommendations in the show notes. Finally, before we do wrap this one up, please remember to follow, subscribe, leave a review for the show. All that stuff helps. It helps a lot. Thanks for hanging out again. I look forward to catching you in the next episode. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.